at. Um, we are in First John, and last week we kind of talked about the context of it, the overview of it a little bit. Um, that First John, the the Apostle John was battling um, some false teachers, and we call them Gnostics. Um, they believed a plethora of things. They denied the deity of Jesus. They denied that Jesus came in human flesh, and they have a very twisted view of sin in the life of the believer. Uh, so without further ado, uh, and, and next time maybe I'll be cool enough to give Mike some slides and, and, and we'll, get, we'll get going on that. But the title of this message is called Light and Sin. So join me in 1 John chapter 1. We'll be beginning at verses 5 and going through verse 10. 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 through 10. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. We say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in the darkness. We lie. We do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We say that we have not sinned. We make him a liar. His word is not in us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much uh, for this place. We thank you, God, for this pulpit. And we thank you, Lord, for uh, leaders like, like Rick Lechner, who, who would gladly allow uh, people to rise up and, and, to, and to get time to preach and to get time to exercise the, the gifts and the callings that, you know, or that you've called them to, Lord. So we thank you for that. We God, we, we give you the praise for what you're doing here in this place and in this building and with these people here, our family, our brothers and our sisters, this, this beautiful congregation. It's so cool when people ask us how big our core team is, we get to say like 20 or 30. You know, we have a big family here and they've been, they've been here for a lot of years doing this. And so, Lord, I just thank you that you have allowed uh, me to come in here gracefully and that they've received me with open arms. But most importantly, Lord, this isn't about me. Even if they didn't like me, it's all about you, Lord. So would you get the glory tonight? Would you get the glory for everything? And I pray, Lord, that your light might shine on the darkness in our hearts tonight, knowing that there is sin in our hearts. There's sin somewhere in our life. I pray that you would shine that light on us, God, that we could confess our sins, that we could be forgiven and cleansed and be free. So, Lord, we ask for your grace here. Free me up. Open the hearts of um, the hearers. Allow them to hear. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Don't mind my new glasses. I went to the doctor, so I can see a lot better, kind of. They're very mild, but I really like to wear them now, so it's pretty cool. Uh, so what comes to your mind when you think of the word light? You know, maybe the sun or the stars, light bulbs, flashlights. You know, many of us used to walk around with flashlights in our back pocket, right? Uh, maybe a car with its headlights on. But what is the purpose of these sources of light? The point of light is to make things visible that we didn't see previously due to the layers of darkness that it was hidden in, right? For example, we use headlights on our car to, to shine on the black asphalt to show us the ditches on each side of the road, right? Uh, it, it, the headlights of the car help us to keep us on the road, out of the ditch, and safe from collisions with other cars and with animals, deers that would jump over across the road, right? And the sun, another example is that the sun rises every morning in the east, and it chases the darkness away and it reveals to us the beautiful creation that God has made. When we walk into a dark room, we often search the wall for a light switch. 
And, and when flipped, it instantly reveals everything that was in the room. It lights up the room. It shows us the furniture that's in there. We can walk around the room then and navigate without stubbing our toe or knocking things over or bumping into things. It makes life a lot easier to have the light, right? It doesn't necessarily create what was there. It really just kind of reveals what was already in that room. So light is our guide and it's our protector in the darkest night. Just as a lighthouse kind of keeps a, a ship from sailing into shore... And a fire in the dark helps to ward off predators, and a distant light can get us home. See, I remember a time in my life where I lived on a big farm, and uh, it didn't matter where I was at in the woods. It didn't matter how dark it was. I knew that I could always see that big old yard lamp out there in the front yard of that place, and I could see the front porch light. That front porch light always stayed on. The door was always unlocked. I could always come there. So it didn't matter how far off I was in the woods how dark it was, as long as I set my face on that light and walked towards it, I could always find my way back home. It was always there. I could always walk to it. So putting the light aside for a split second, I want you guys to remember the the context of this again, that that John is battling Gnostic false teachers who deny the existence of sin or that it's even important in the life of the believer. So with the Gnostics and the thought of light in our mind, I want us to focus on this passage of Scripture that we were reading in uh, and starting at at verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him, and we declare to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Our first point, God is light. So we begin this next section of Scripture in the series of 1 John by looking at the confident statement made by John that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So John assures his audience and his readers today that he knows this to be true, that he can trust, that they can trust his statement because he heard it straight from the source. He heard it straight from Jesus Christ himself, right? So he starts by saying that this is, this is a message that we've heard from him and we declare it to you. Not only John, but many other individuals. Remember I told you last week about Peter and Paul and, and I told you about Jude and James and then and then the many that he appeared to, even after he resurrected, I think it says that he, he taught even 500, right? He appeared to 500 individuals. They all seen him. They all heard messages like this, that God was light and in him was no darkness at all. And this is a great message, right? Like we could really kind of just move on from there. Like, yeah, God is light. That's great. In him is no darkness at all. We know that. And, and as Christians, we know that to be true. But without careful consideration we just kind of read over this statement and not totally grasp the fullness of what john's saying so what does the statement god is light and in him is no darkness at all really mean as we look at other writings of john uh, we see exactly where john has learned this doctrine and uh, and what it means that god is light so repeatedly over and over again john records statements made from jesus in his gospel where jesus testifies about being the light So here are just a few examples in John chapter 8, verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And in John 12, 35 and 36, then Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. The light referring to himself. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. So we see a brilliant example, and we also see a brilliant example of the glory of God directly related to the statement that God is light in Revelation 22, uh, verse 5. 
when he says this, that there will be no longer that there will no longer be any night and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. The glory of God will light up heaven. There will be no need of the sun, no need of a lamp, no need of a flashlight, no need of any of that stuff. The glory of God himself will illumine heaven. It's amazing. So John's writings are not the only place that we see the light of God used or, or that God is light being used. In Job thirty three twenty eight. Uh, I'll read this for you. He has redeemed my soul from going to the pit, and my life shall see the light. Psalm eighteen twenty eight. For you light my lamp. The Lord God illumines my darkness. Psalm thirty six nine. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Psalm forty three three. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill in your dwelling places. We see that that. The light of God illumines darkness. The light of God gives us light. The light of God leads us in truth. So as we interpret Scripture with Scripture, which is the best commentary to use, is just other Scripture, right? We see that the meaning behind the statement that God is light has everything to do with the character of God Himself. And one interpreter of Scripture who I hold dear in my heart, you guys have probably never heard of him, Bob Shanks, puts it this way. And I quote, light stresses the glory of God, his purity, truthfulness, and holiness, end quote. God is the unapproachable light in all his glory and majesty. He is the light that blinded Saul on the road to Damascus. He is the light that all darkness runs and hides from. The light of God describes his holiness. It shows that he is pure. And when we bring in other attributes of God, like that he is spirit and that he is love, because elsewhere in 1 John, John says God is love. When we bring those things into play, we're then able to capture the non-material nature of God. So in layman's terms, we see that God is light, God is love, and God is spirit. We can kind of get a glimpse of, of his essence, of kind of who he is. It kind of, hopefully you guys can understand it that way. Uh, the, the truth is that, yes, God is love which means he is merciful, he's kind to all, and he's patient. But God, uh, <clears throat> but God is also light, which again means he is pure and he's holy and he's righteous. So there's no lie, no injustice, no fault in the nature of God. He is perfect and no darkness whatsoever can stand in his presence. So this is the thing. Uh, I'm going to get off topic here, but it's worth going down this rabbit trail. When people say... Angels have been in the presence of God, right? They are radiating his glory. So when people say that they have seen an angel and they don't fall flat on their face, they're lying. Okay, you cannot stand in the presence of God. You're full of sin still. The glory of God illuminates these angels and you can't even stand in the presence of them without falling flat on your face. Have you, have you read the scriptures where every time they come in contact with them, they fall on their face, they want to die. <clears throat> so he is God is light and, and this light is the light that delivers us from darkness he is the light that protects us from the darkness he is the light that exposes us the sins that we've hidden in the darkness he is the light that shines in the darkness drawing us to fellowship with him and his children he's like that distant yard lamp that distant, distant uh, porch light I was just telling you about he's drawing me home he's drawing me to him he's drawing us to fellowship with other believers and fellowship with him. 
God is light and in him is no darkness at all. All that he is is pure and true and holy and righteous. So let's move on and examine verses 6 and 7. If we say that we have fellowship with him, verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Amen. That preaches by itself. I don't even have to say anything, right? See, the Apostle John does an excellent job here here and in the following verses of combating the false teachers on the issue of sin in the life of a genuine believer. Because remember that the Gnostics believed that matter was evil and only the spirit was good. And this led to some very crazy views of sin. They thought that the body either needed to be treated very harshly, like the monks would treat themselves, like early, uh, uh, early day monks in the 1500s and stuff. They'd sleep on the cold ground to abuse their bodies, thinking that that's how they had to live uh, to, to deal with the sin in their life. Or they, or they thought that sin done in the body had no effect on the spirit whatsoever, that you could just sin as much as you want to. And this led some to even go as far as denying sin altogether, that there was no such thing as sin. And this brings us to our second point of true fellowship with God and true fellowship with each other. So John begins this uh, in verse verse 6 by saying, If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie. So this is the person with the big mouth right here. This is Mr. Big Talk. This is the person sitting in their church pew uh, uh, claiming Jesus Christ, yet everything in their life tells us otherwise. This is the one who knows all the right answers and says all the right things, yet, they're, uh, yet they are unregenerated and their life shows it through the darkness that they live in. This is the false convert. This is the tare among the wheat, the goat among the sheep. This is the, the Pharisee and not the tax collector who is justified. And John even goes as far as to call this person a liar. He calls him out. If you say that you have fellowship with the light, yet you walk in the darkness, you're a liar. We simply cannot say that we have fellowship with God and walk in the darkness habitually. We can't practice it. We can't make it a habit. We cannot say that we have partnership with God and share the same common interests, yet turn around and live a wretched, sinful life. Because that word fellowship means to have partnership with, and we have the same common interests. We're striving towards the same things together. So again, John 8, 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So the true believer has the light of life. They've been born again. They have been brought from dead to life. They have the light of God radiating through them, and they cannot walk in darkness. They're a beaming light of God. They are a flashlight in a dark tunnel. They radiate the glory of God. They, we are ambassadors of Christ, is what the scriptures say. It is evident that we are believers, right? We can't walk in the darkness. So there's no beating around the bush. There's no gray areas. It's super simple. The one who claims this and lives, the one who claims Christ and lives in the darkness, they're self-deceived liars. The truth is not in them. These are the people that we read about in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The Christian imposter practices not the truth, but lawlessness. And I'm going to hit home on some of this stuff here pretty soon. You might be kind of confused. 
But th- I want you to think about this. I want you to take the doctor who practices medicine, right? I want you to uh, take the lawyer who practices law. These people carry out and apply procedures and methods that they learned in school, and they practice it every single day, right? Almost every day they habitually do this. The doctor is always at work practicing his trade. The lawyer is always at work practicing their trade, right? Do you get the picture of that when he says you do not practice the truth or, or when he says you who practice lawlessness? It's a habitual thing. It's something that they're, they're waking up and they're doing every single day. The mark of the imposter Christian is that exactly. It's what they practice, and it's evident by the fruit that they produce. And again, one cannot say that they are a Christian who habitually practice sin. The Spirit of God will not allow His children to live that way. Without conviction, right? You're going to be convicted. You can't live in the darkness and say that you're a child of God without there being some sort of conviction. You're just not going to do it. You're not. They may say that they're doing these things for Jesus, like in verse uh, in Matthew chapter seven, they said, "You know, I prophesied in your name, Lord. I cast out demons in your name. I did this in your la- in your name." But here's the thing: they did not prophesy. They did not cast out demons. I heard one man say they probably had a demon, and they did not do many wonders for Jesus. The one who practices darkness is not a child of God. And I'm glad that we stand here as a church because many churches today would not preach hard on sin. Many churches today would leave people deceived. Many churches today would allow people to be part of their membership role knowing that they're living a habitual life of drug addiction or a habitual life of drunkenness or, or living with somebody they're not married to. Many churches today would love it for their numbers and they would do it. They would allow them in. They would not address them. They're soft. And on the other hand, the genuine believer practice. So we had the, the unregenerate, ungenuine believer. And on this hand, we have the genuine believer who practices righteousness and I've heard it said, and I know it to be true, and you, can, and you can write this down. I got it for free. You can have it for free. That it's all about direction and not perfection, okay? It's all about direction and not perfection. We'll not live a perfect, we will not live a perfect life in Christ, this side of heaven, without sin. Have you, do you guys not remember uh, uh, Romans chapter 7, Paul's struggle with sin? When he says, the things I don't want to do, I do. And the things that I don't want to do, I, or the things that I do want to do, I don't do. He wrestles. Who should save me from this wretched man that I am? He wrestles with sin. And Paul was probably one of the most superhero Christians we know, right? Next to Jesus Christ, he's the guy I want to be like. Then also here in verse 7, as we move on. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So if there was no sin in the life of the believer who was walking in the light, then why does it say here that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin? So if there was no sin, why would we need the blood to continually cleanse us? So look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It's super plain. Or super plain. It's right there. And again in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So there will be sin in the life of a believer. But it's not what you're practicing. Jesus Christ cannot be a liar. So look at verse 10 and it'll make sense here. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And we know Jesus Christ cannot be a liar. We will stumble in the life of a believer. So take, for instance, our forefathers, Abraham. Or, or David, right? He was a man after God's own heart. And what did he do? Amen. He, amen. He sure did. 
And even Peter, they all sinned post-conversion. Remember Peter, his old racism came back up in his heart and he, he sat with only the Jews and he pushed off the Gentiles and Paul had to come up and approach him and, 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 and rebuke him. He sinned post-conviction. Did he, lose his, did he lose his salvation with God? No, but he did stumble. He did sin. But I, I can assure you this, that just like when Peter realized he had sinned, when he, uh, when he rejected Jesus three times and, the, and, and, he, and it said that he wept, I can assure you that Peter repented again. <clears throat> so these men set their faces towards God and they pursued him in the light. They believed in the light. They practiced the truth that the they practiced the truth that the light of God had revealed to them at that time. A genuine Christian has no need to talk a big talk like those who say they're Christians yet practice lawlessness. There's no reason for us to sit here and talk a big talk of how saved we are or how much or how godly we are. Our life should show it, right? We shouldn't have to run our mouths. We shouldn't have to to talk a big game. Listen to the wisdom that Jesus imparts to us in Matthew 7, 16 through 18. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Simple. Jesus spelled it out for us. Good root equals good fruit. The genuine Christian will produce genuine fruit. An apple tree will produce apples. A thorn bush will not produce apples. Herbology 101 with Tanner. <laughs> my mom, my mom, never mind, I'm not going to say that. We should see in the life, uh, we should see in the, in the Christian the fruit of the Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit. Not fruits, but the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We should see the genuine Christian practicing the truth daily. We won't do it perfect. We won't be sinless, but we will sin less. We are being changed. We will sin less. Look at verse, uh, look again at verse seven. But if we walk in the light, hold on one second. But we will assume it. So look, and this brings us into fellowship. Walking in the light brings us into fellowship with God. Or this fellowship with God brings us into pursuing Christ. It brings us into walking in the light. It brings us into practicing the truth. And it leads us to our next point, which is fellowship with each other. Because if we're walking in the light, if we're chasing Christ, if we're, if we're, if we're chasing after the truth, it's going to draw us closer to those who are doing the same thing, right? So if you want to be a mechanic, who do you hang out with? Mechanics. If you want to be a doctor, who do you hang out with? Doctors. If you wanted to be a dope dealer, who did you hang out with back then? Dope dealers. If, if that was the, that's the same thing here. If, uh, if, you, if, if you want to live a, a Christ-filled life, who do you hang out with? Christians. Christians. We're not unequally yoked. So look at verse 7. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So look, going to church does not save you. Just because you're here or you grew up in church does not mean that you're saved today. It does not save you. Doing good deeds does not save you. If you're basing your good deeds, if you're saying, because I did this, this saves me, you might as well go join the Red Cross. You might as well go join the Salvation Army because that's all they're doing is good deeds. And it's got no eternal impact. We're saved by grace through faith in the precious blood of Christ that was poured out for sinners. 
The blood causes a change in our life. And the outcome of a genuine uh, conversion is a sensitivity to sin in our life and a desire to want to be around other like-minded Christians. So look at, uh, listen to 2 Timothy 2, chapter 2. Flee also youthful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And again in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is a manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Look at the times that we're in. There's no Lone Ranger Christians out there. Look at the times that we're in. We should be drawing near to each other even more. Drawing near to God even more as we see this day approaching. So again, going to church doesn't save a person. But a saved person will want to be a part of a local church. We want to lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us and pursue Jesus Christ with brothers and sisters that will hold us accountable and help us to grow. I want to hang out with people like Rick, who allows this pulpit to be open, his pulpit to be open for people like me and people like Jeff and, and he and, and Mike Gunner and John to grow in the word, to grow in the callings of which God's called us to. I want people to challenge me. I want people to hold me accountable. I want them to tell me, you're sinning. You are acting like a fool. So in verse 8, which this brings us to our third point, is to, is to confess sin. So we look at verse 8. John writes a statement to combat the false teachers who deny the existence of sin. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So from the beginning, the false teachers had it wrong. And to claim that, that we are without sin is a bold-faced lie. For what does the Bible say about that in Romans 3.23? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The word sin here is an archery term. So we got any hunters in here? Does anybody like to bow hunt? No, maybe I'm the only one. Am I, I'm in a, am I in a conservative place? Okay. Well, anyways, I love to bow hunt, man. I really do. I do. And back in the day, I could pull my bow back. This is before. I'm off parole now. So I'd pull my bow back, man, and I would shoot. And my, my aim every time was to hit that bullseye. But the word sin here is an archery term. It means to miss the mark. It means to shoot to the right of, to the left of, right under or right over the back of the animal that you're aiming at. You sinned. You missed the mark. Every time we're shooting for God's glory and we miss the mark every time, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How do we reach that mark? One person. What's his name? That's it. The Bible specifically says that all have sinned. Not just one or not just a few, but all, right? It's in, and it's inherited through the fall of man. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden, it brought sin and death to all creation. All of the world, all of the earth, all of creation was cursed. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as, though one man's, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So listen, church. No one has ever entered heaven without first acknowledging sin. That's what John's saying. If you say you don't sin, you're a liar, and the truth is not in you. If you say you don't sin, you're a liar, and your salvation is phony. If you say you don't sin, your salvation is phony, you're a liar, and you are an imposter. You are a Pharisee, and the blood of Christ has not cleansed you. 
It's simple. No one can be saved without first acknowledging that they are lost and, and perishing. It's like a man on a sinking ship who won't admit that he's sinking. It's going down. It's going down and it's going down and he keeps crawling to the highest point of the ship. And he's standing there and you come along with the lifeboat and a life preserver and you're saying, man, you're sinking. And he's saying, no, I'm not. You're sinking. You're going to die. You're going to drown. No, I'm not. My boat is not sinking. It doesn't matter how many life preservers you throw at that man, how many you throw his way until he realizes that he is sinking. He cannot be rescued. He's going to drown. It's the same. We must confess our sin in order to be saved. It works no other way. So we look at verse 9. Uh, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Lord. That's for the person coming to Christ who's newly born again. And that's for the Christians who's been saved for 50 years. You confess that sin. Even though the death on the cross was a one-time deal, the blood continues to cleanse, continues to cleanse, and it continues to cleanse. So the word confess in the Greek is homologeo, which means literally to say the same as. It means to say the same as. So we're, we don't say the same thing that the world says about our sins, that it was a hiccup or a mistake. It was a little slip up. No, we say we call sin exactly what God calls sin, and he calls it a trespass against him. He calls it disobedience. He calls it defilement. He, it makes him want to vomit. Sin is darkness and sin is wicked. It's not a hiccup. It's not cute. It's not a slip up. It's, a, it's darkness. So John's given the, the genuine believer assurance of their salvation here in these verses by saying that the true believer is a habitual confessor of sins. Uh, and so I heard Charles Spurgeon, I didn't hear it, but I read Charles Spurgeon say one time that the life of a Christian is a life of repentance. It's a continual uh, confession of your sins and turning away from the things that you love. So one of the major marks of a genuine believer is the brokenness that they have over sin. It's a constant confession of trespass against God and His truth. We trespass against God, right? Here's His law. He's saying, don't go past this. And what do we do? We trespass against Him. And we sin against Him. We miss the mark of His glory. It's the constant conf- it, it, it's, it is the grieving over a decision to defile the temple of God with our bodies, uh, or which is our bodies, with sin. We are grieved when we do something we shouldn't do. That we defiled the temple, the holy temple of God, which is our bodies, if we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. We grieve over that. We're sick over that. The unregenerated person has very little conviction of sin. Do you remember before you were saved, before the Holy Spirit came to live inside of your heart? It didn't matter really what you did, huh? I know that was true for me. I had very little conviction. The confession of sin marks the true believer. So you might come to me and you might say, I just don't think I'm saved. I just continue to sin and I continue to sin and I continue to sin. But I'm tore up about it, Pastor. I'm tore up about this. And I would say, you just passed the acid test. You're tore up about your sin. You know, Martin Luther, 
uh, uh, he was a great man. He used to go and spend hours and on hours in the confessional when he was a Catholic, before he was saved. He would spend hours and hours in there. And the priest finally told him, he said, don't come back to me unless you've committed adultery or you've killed somebody. Quit confessing these sins to me. He was convicted about the life that he was living, man. So this also brings up a good point. Who do we confess to? Do we take our sins to a priest to be forgiven? Do we go, do we go to, to a confession? Do we sit in a little booth? Do we slide in there? We say, Father, which we should never call him that. Father, do I, uh, I'm sorry I did this and I did that and I did that. And he says, why don't you go say ten Hail Marys and do this and jump on one foot and you'll be, you'll be set free. You'll be forgiven. Is that how, is that how we confess our sins? Absolutely not. For what does Scripture say? Against you and only you have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, God. And in another place, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. You don't have to pray to Mary. You don't have to pray to a priest. You don't have to pray to anybody to be forgiven for your sin but Jesus Christ. And that's it. Amen. Confession starts at the foot of the cross. Yes, the Bible does tell us to confess our sins one to another. And for the purpose of accountability, it's absolutely beneficial. And the Bible is also clear on making amends to those who we've wronged. Absolutely. But for the purpose of cleansing, being made clean, there's only one source we confess to, and that's God. As born-again believers, we walk in the light. We continually practice the truth. And the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sins. So just as it says in verses 7 and 9, even the sins that we don't, it, does, it doesn't say this, but it cleanses us from all sins. So it's even like the sins that we don't necessarily notice, right? It's even the sins that people think are too big to be forgiven. There's things that we're doing every day when we're falling short of the glory of God and we may not even realize it. His blood cleanses us of that sin as long as we're in Christ, as long as we're saved, as long as we're born again. Even those sins that you thought I could never be forgiven for. God, you don't understand what I did. I did this. You can't forgive me for that. The blood of Christ is powerful and it will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You guys remember that hymn? There's power in the blood. There's power in the blood. Power, power, wonder working power in the blood. In the blood of the Lamb. Amen. There's power in the blood. And it it has no boundaries. It has no limitations. It can and it will cleanse all sin. No matter how big, no matter how small. When we continually practice the truth and we're walking in the light. No matter what you've done, the blood of Christ is sufficient to cleanse. The blood of Christ cleanses us because of the union that we have with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And it's an unbreakable union. It cannot be tampered with, even due to sin. In 1 Peter 1, 4-5, it says this about our salvation. That it is an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, that does not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you, who are kept, listen to this, who are kept by the power of God, through faith, for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Our union with Christ is unbreakable. We cannot lose our salvation. It is kept by the power of God in heaven, uncorruptible. It does not rust, does not varnish. It cannot be tampered with. It has a seal that cannot be broken. And Jesus even said this, that those he's given eternal life, no one can snatch them out of his hands. It's kind of like this in that parable. You have... If this is us, 
This is the hand of Jesus. And it also talks about the Father's hand being over that. You can come up here and try to. I'm not a big guy. But you can come up here and try to take this ring in my hand. You will not get it. I'm closing one fist. I'm closing the other. You can't get in there. And that's exactly the, the, the symbolism, the, the image that we can glean from that when he says that. That I and the Father are one. And, you and I, you, I have you in my hand and the Father has me in you in his hand. But sin in the life of the believer, it makes us sick. It brings God's chastening and his righteous discipline. Those that the Father loves, he disciplines. You can trust that you're a child of God when you're getting beat up about your sin. When you're convicted about your sin, when your blessings are being withheld, when you're being disciplined by the Lord, you can trust you're a child of God. Thank you, Lord. Like, thanks for the storms. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know what? We live in such a, never mind. We are, we are totally contrary to the world, right? The world wouldn't like that, but we love it. Discipline me, Lord. If I'm in sin, get me. Don't let me go far. Break my back. Sin withholds goodness from our lives. Pastor Rick read that last night at Freeway in Jeremiah chapter 5, I think is when it, where it was. Uh, and we should never allow sin to build up in our lives. We should keep a short tally mark of these things. As we're doing it, we should confess it, guys. Because I'm telling you, uh, the union with Christ that we have, it will not be broken because of, of the blood. It is kept by God. It, it is salvation. You can't lose it. But as we allow these sins to build up in our lives... Your prayers hit the ceiling, right? It seems like uh, you can't preach a message very well. It, it, it just doesn't go very far. It falls out and falls flat on the floor, you know? Uh, blessings are kept from your life. Things like that. It, it puts a blocker, it seems like. He wants you, to, he wants you to, to, to listen to verse 9 here. Confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. He can cleanse us. He wants to cleanse us. He doesn't want that dirt all over us. It's like... A good image of this is when he was cleaning the disciples' feet, right? And he told, and Peter told him, don't wash my feet. You know, he said, you can have no part of me unless I wash you. The one, you're already clean, and all that needs to be washed is your feet. Because all, he was already washed brand new and clean through the blood of Jesus Christ. But the only defilement he was picking up was from the road was through his feet. That's all that needed to be clean. He needed to confess. He needed to, he needed to be washed low there. I hope that made sense. My prayer is this, that God would help me to see sin for what it is in my life and that he would be quick to to convict me and that I would be quick to confess to him. And I know that when I have unconfessed sin in my life, it weighs me down. I become like David in Psalm 32 when he says this, I kept silent. My bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality, my life pretty much was turned into the drought of summer. Where I was lively, I was then like the drought of summer. I was dead. So at times, what I'll do, and look guys, just because I'm up here doesn't mean I'm any better than you are. There's times in my life where I've allowed sin to build up and my, my fellowship with the Lord doesn't seem right. My fellowship with other believers doesn't seem right. And what I have to do is I have to go and I gotta get alone with the Lord. So a lot of times I'll take out a piece of paper and I'll start writing them down. I've done this, this. I looked at this. I shouldn't have done that. I said this. I thought that. And then I'll just get quiet when I run out and I'll ask the Lord, please show me. Is there anything else I'm missing? Because only you can search my heart. And he, he's faithful. He'll show you. So you just write them out again. And you get quiet and you, and you ask him again, is there anything else, Lord? And he'll, when he doesn't say anything else, when he doesn't put anything else on your heart, it's when you go through it and you just, and that's what I do. I just go through it from the top and I start confessing, Lord, forgive me. 
Forgive me for allowing these sins to build up. Forgive me, Lord, as I started to tilt towards darkness. Forgive me, Lord. So I have that sin list. Well, I can't, and, uh, and, and so I want you guys to know this, that the light of the Lord is a powerful thing. It's a glorious thing. It's His holiness that shines light on, on our sin and our imperfections, right? It's not, I think Martin Lloyd-Jones had said, it's, it, it's not the amount of sin that we've done that allows us to see our sin. It's the holiness of God. So when we see the light of the Lord, we then see ourselves for who we truly are. It's kind of like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, he gives an image of, of the robe of the Lord filling the temple, right? And that, and that the angels were flying and they had hands that covered their eyes, uh, hands that covered their feet and, and wings that flew or wings that covered their eyes, wings that covered their feet and wings that flew. And what that's saying is that the Lord God is so holy in all of His splendor and all of His, might, uh, and all of His righteousness that you can't even look upon Him. You can't stand in his presence. That's what it's symbolizing. And what does Isaiah do? He says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. He saw God for who he truly was, and then he saw himself for who he was for the first time. So as we have an encounter with the light, just as Paul had an encounter with the light, on the road to Damascus, we begin to see ourselves for who we truly are. Paul thought he was, a, Paul thought he was righteous in doing what he was doing, right? But when he had that encounter with the light of Jesus Christ, and it knocked him on his Behind, and he was blinded. It, it's, he allowed him, it allowed him to see himself for who he was. And he, and he changed. He confessed his sin. So his light guides us in his truth. His light keeps us pure. So today, Christian, I, w- I, I want to ask you this. What sin is God shining light on in your life? What is the sin in your life right now that God is shining light on? Don't wait any longer. I want you to confess it, guys. Allow the conviction of, 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 of this to draw you closer to the Lord. He's not going to push you away. He wants you to come and confess those things. I've heard of great stories of great revivals that had happened where all of a sudden people would just stand up and they'd start confessing sins. Right? They would just let everybody know, this is what I've been doing, Lord, forgive me. You know, and everybody was around to hear them and they didn't care. They confessed their sins. And that's where great revival started at was through prayer and the confession of sin. We too can have the same thing here in this city. If we would get right with the Lord, if we would allow His, if we would answer to the light that's shining on our sin in our darkness. And so for you who say that you don't have sin, who say that you're a perfect person, who haven't really sinned all that much, I want you to repent because you're lying. And I want you to draw near to the foot of the cross. I want you to confess your sins. I want you to hear my plea. Like I said, repent. I want to leave you with this verse. It's in, it's in a Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. His word guides us through this life, guys. Everything that we need, it's right here. Answered everything, it's right here, guys. You would just bow with me. I'm going to go ahead and pray and close this out.